All right, open up your Bibles, Philippians chapter 3. I've entitled my message, Heavenly Mathematics. Heavenly Mathematics. A Chinese man and a Jewish man were eating in the same cafeteria. Suddenly, without warning, the Jewish man punches the Chinese fellow and sends him sprawling. The Chinese man picks himself up and says, what was that for? I don't even know you. The answer comes back, that was for Pearl Harbor. And the Chinese man was stunned. He said, Pearl Harbor? I didn't have anything to do with Pearl Harbor. It was the Japanese that bombed Pearl Harbor. The Jewish man says, Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, they're all the same to me. Well, shortly afterwards, everyone sat down again and they were eating and the Chinese man sneaks up from behind and he belts the Jewish man, sending him flying across the floor. He picks himself up and the Jew yells out, why did you do that? And the Chinese man says, for the Titanic. And the Jewish man says, the Titanic? Jews didn't have anything to do with the Titanic. The Chinese man retorts, Feinberg, Goldberg, Iceberg, they're all the same to me. (laughs) A fictitious story. (laughs) And truthfully, probably not politically correct, okay? I will admit that, okay? That goes not beyond these walls. We can even cut it out of the tape, okay? (laughs) I think we would say nobody would take such rash actions based on such wrong information. But the truth of the matter is, people do it all the time, especially in the spiritual realm. They stake their eternity on misinformation. There are people all over the world that are staking their eternity on misinformation. And the old cliche is, they didn't do their homework. We say that on a lot of things. They didn't do their homework. Or they didn't do the math, sometimes we say that. They didn't do the math, even though it's not related to a math question. That's why I've entitled my message, Heavenly Mathematics. The key word in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, is the word count. Look at it in verse 7, 8, and verse 11. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, it's a different English word. If by any means I may attain or count on having the assurance of the resurrection. So these two Greek words, which are translated into English, although they're different words, Uh, in the Greek language and translated differently in the English language, they have the same basic meaning. The Greek words, the English words mean to evaluate, Paul is saying. To evaluate, to assess, or to examine. That's the root meaning, the etymology of those words. To to evaluate, to uh, assess, or to examine. Socrates referring to life, said 
the unexamined life is not worth living. And that's certainly true still today. The unexamined life, or in other words, a life that hasn't been evaluated or assessed or examined is, is, is a meaningless, directionless, hopeless life. In one way, Paul is saying that he came to the place where he began to evaluate his life because of God's help. So we have to admit, few people weigh, few people weigh seriously their beliefs, which ultimately determine their uh, decisions in life and regarding eternity and their destination. Few people weigh carefully, weigh heavily their belief system, which ultimately spills out into everything in this life and ultimately in eternity. So we're challenged in this passage of Scripture to weigh, to assess, to count, as it's translated in the verses 7 and 8, to weigh, to assess, to examine, to evaluate what are we counting on in light of eternity. In Paul's case, what he lived for before Christ seemed, seemed like very good, commendable things. Paul wanted a uh, righteous life, obedience to the law, and he defended Judaism. That kind of characterizes Paul pre-Christian life. Righteous life, obedience to the law, defending Judaism. Like most religious people today, Paul had enough morality to make him respectable, but he didn't have enough righteousness to get him into heaven. And that would characterize most people alive on earth today. They have probably enough morality to keep them respectable in the eyes of other people, but they don't have enough righteousness to get them into heaven. Paul began to assess that. It was not the bad things that was keeping Paul from Jesus. He didn't have a lot of bad things in his life. People think, well, if I get saved, that means I've got to get rid of all these bad things. They'll probably fall off on their own. It wasn't the bad things that were keeping Paul from Christ. It was really the good things. He was counting on his good life, and that was what was keeping him from Christ. And that's what keeps most people from Christ today. Paul had to lose his religion if he was going to gain or find salvation. He had to lose his religion to find salvation because he was counting on his religion to getting him, getting him to heaven. And that's true for most people in the world today. They're counting on their religion, their morality to get them into heaven, and they got to lose those things to be able to find Christ. Well, as you well know, one day Saul of Tarsus the Jewish rabbi, met Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And on that day, Saul's values changed. His eternity changed, but his values changed. As he explains in this portion of Scripture, there are only two kinds of righteousness, and we need to understand it. There are only two kinds of righteousness. Works righteousness, which depend upon us, and 
Christ righteousness or faith righteousness which depends upon God. And there's only one that will get you into heaven. There's only one that, uh, type of righteousness that is acceptable to God, and that's faith righteousness. So if you're, not, if you're not confident in your righteousness that's found in Christ alone, listen up. This passage is for you. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 where Paul talks about works righteousness. Works righteousness. Let's read it again. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write to you these same things is not tedious. Paul says, I'm more than glad to write to you about the gospel and explain to you that it isn't by works, but it's by faith in Jesus Christ. This is not laborious for me. It's not tedious. But for you, it is safe. This helps you understand how to get to heaven. For you, it's safe. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, Paul says, if anybody should have a reason to trust in his works, it's me. And he lists some of that. This is not the only time he does that. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in his flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day. That was according to the law because Platelets are the highest in a, in a boy's body on the eighth day. So the Jews, by God's instruction, circumcised their boys on the eighth day because they would have no problem blood clotting and uh, not having a bleeding problem. So he says, circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of the, uh, uh, of the stock of Israel. In other words, I was pure Jew. I'm not half-breed. I'm pure Jew. He's not like Timothy, his understudy. Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Roman. Paul says, I am the stock of Jews. I am the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that remained loyal to Jesus or remained loyal to Jehovah, I should say. It was Judah and Benjamin, while the northern ten tribes were in apostasy after Solomon's rule. I'm of the tribe, I'm of the group of people that remained loyal to Jehovah God is what he's saying. A Hebrew of Hebrews, considering, a, uh, considering the law of Pharisees. In other, in other words, when it comes to keeping the law, nobody was more meticulous. Nobody was more zealous. Mo, nobody was more uh, uh, zealous about keeping the law than a Pharisee. And Paul was the top rank of Pharisees. He was getting ready to become the lead teacher in Israel. So he lays out his credentials. In verses 1 through 3, he gives them, first of all, an exhortation. The exhortation, verses 1 through 3. Who is he referring to in this triple warning when he says, um, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation? Well, to answer that question, we have to do a little bit of early church history. Remember in the first seven chapters in the book of Acts deal with uh, the Jewish conversions. And Peter led the preaching. And then Paul was converted, Acts chapter 9. And Paul immediately begins to uh, go to the synagogues and he preached to the Jews first, but then he began to preach to the Gentiles. So 
in those early chapters, Jews were being saved, but then after Paul got converted, even though he's a, a Jewish zealot, the Gentiles began getting saved, and the Jews in Jerusalem began to get in an uproar. Hey, wait a minute. This is an extension of Judaism. Christianity is an extension of Judaism. You've got to become a Jew first before you can become a Christian. You've got to become a Jew first before you can really experience genuine salvation. They confused things, and they began to send out people to proselyte people back into Judaism. But in Acts chapter 10... Uh, when Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles, it blew the doors off the thinking of the Jerusalem church. Because here is a, here is a, a tanner, Simon the tanner, pure Gentile. He gets saved. And then they're saying, wait a minute. Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. Now Peter's preaching to the Gentiles. And they're getting saved. And they're receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's been manifested very very visibly by their speaking of tongues as they did in those early chapters. How could the Gentiles become Christians without first becoming Jews? And they had a big argument. Matter of fact, that's what the Jerusalem Council was all about. Can we really take the gospel to the Gentiles? Is God's intention? The, the, the disciples completely missed it during Jesus' teaching. So the Jerusalem Council unified, was unified in its agreement that God was saving the Gentiles without the law. The Gentiles didn't have the law. They didn't know the law. They were just hearing the gospel of grace and they were being saved. And they came to recognition and in unified agreement, God is saving Gentiles without them becoming Jews and keeping the law. They hear the gospel and they're being saved. But some Jewish brethren opposed it still. And they opposed Paul's ministry. And they followed him around. They followed him everywhere he went. And they tried to steal his converts. And we see that in the book of Galatians. We see it in the book of 1 Corinthians. And these false teachers mix law and grace. And by the way, that sometimes happens even today. There are people that really preach a mixture of law and grace. The same way we're saved is the same way we're sanctified by grace. So they're called in the Bible Judaizers. And Galatians was written primarily to combat that teaching. It's the main book that deals with that. Notice the three terms that Paul uses here. He calls them dogs. That seems a little unkind, but you know, Paul was pretty upset about this. He calls them dogs. These false teachers were like dirty scavengers that were snapping at Paul's heels, following everywhere he went, barking out their false doctrine and confusing people. So he calls them dogs. They were carrying this infectious doctrine that you have to be, keep the law or you're really not saved. Next thing he calls them is evil workers. That's what he says in the next phrase. Evil workers. They taught that sinners were saved by faith plus good works. And Paul was teaching that even our good works are essentially evil in God's eyes. There is no good work that we can do that wins God's approval. 
That's what Paul had been teaching, and that's what the Bible teaches. So he's saying they were evil workers. They were teaching people to, to rest and to trust in their, in their good works. Well, <clears throat> Paul thought these good works were essentially evil because they were performed by the flesh and not by the Spirit. He talks about that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 5. A Christian's good works are not, a Christian's good works are the result of salvation. They don't produce salvation. Yes, we're to have good works, but good works come after our salvation. They don't lead up to and produce our salvation. They're a result of being saved that we want to serve God. The third phrase he uses here is the mutilation. He calls them the mutilation, not those of the circumcision. Really, he's poking, he's using a sarcastic term to poke them. He said, those people that mutilate themselves. Paul had been circumcised, and he had Timothy circumcised, but they were counting on their circumcision to bring them approval to God. And that doesn't do that. Paul talks about being circumcised of the heart. In other words, the foreskin of our heart, the fleshly, the callousness of our heart needs to be removed by coming to Christ in salvation. The physical mutilation, physical circumcision doesn't commend us to God. So Paul sarcastically pokes fun at the word circum- circumcision, calling it mutilation. And it's not necessarily something that brings favor with God. A true believer has been circumcised in the heart, Colossians 2.11. So in contrast to these, he mentions three things or uses three terms about these legalists, these Judaizers. He contrasts true believers, and he uses three phrases. Notice what he said about true Christians. Paul describes true Christians in contrast to those false ones, uh, and he calls them the true circumcision. Because it's an inward spiritual work that's been done. They worship in the Spirit. They're not counting on their flesh to commend them to God. They worship in the Spirit. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay? So they, they worship in the Spirit. In other words, the flesh is not what they're counting on. The flesh isn't magnified. The flesh isn't accentuated. By the way, in worship, when someone is magnifying themselves or magnifying their accomplishment, magnifying and accentuating what they've done for God, that's the flesh coming out. That's the flesh. They worship in the Spirit. God isn't exalted in that. Second thing he says, look at the phrase, they rejoice in Christ. True Christians are going around rejoicing what Christ has done, not what they've done. They rejoice in the fact that he died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He paid for our sin. It's a free gift. All we have to do is is Christ, is accept Christ. And they're rejoicing in it all the time. He says they rejoice in Christ, not what they've done for God. The third thing he says, they put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, there's no self-reliance. It's God-dependence. And that's the way the Lord wants you and I to live. He wants us to live with a constant God-dependence. You know, the, the, the danger is some of us have been saved a long time. And we come to the Christian life and say, well, I got this figured out. 
I know what the Bible says here. I know what I'm supposed to do. I've done this before. And there is a, a self-confidence uh, that, that only puts us in a vulnerable position. A self-confidence that says, I can do this. I've been down this road before. That is, a, that is a formula for disaster. God doesn't want us to live in self-reliance, but upon God dependence. I mean, every time we, we share the word of God or we, we teach a Sunday school lesson or we preach a message or whatever it is that we're doing for God, it should be, God, help me. I cannot do this on my own. I preached 3,000-some sermons here at Red Rocks Baptist Church. But let me tell you, every single day and every single Sunday, I say, oh, God, help me to rely upon you because I can't do it. It is a work of the Spirit, not a work of the flesh. So God wants us to live in God-dependence. Now, certainly, he wants us to be diligent. We're to prepare. I don't just get up on Sunday morning and say, well, I'm going to preach out of my back pocket. Let me see. Let's flip open the Bible. Uh, where it lands, that's what I'll preach on. I prepare during the week. We prepare in the Christian life. God wants us to be diligent in the Christian life, yes, while recognizing he is omnipotent. I'm diligent. You're diligent. He's omnipotent. We do our part, but we ultimately trust that the blessing is going to come from his hand, not from our labors and not from our work. So he gives us an exhortation, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6. We've got to get moving. You're slowing me down here. Okay? Uh, 4 through 6, the example. He gives himself as an example. What does he say here in verses 4 through 6? He says, Though I might have some confidence in the flesh, Paul is kind of being humble. In other words, match your resume to mine. Look at your track record, compare it to mine. And he gives a short summary. Uh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning law, Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. You can't point a finger at me. You can't point anything in the law that I haven't followed, Paul is saying. I couldn't say that. You can't say that. So he holds himself up as an example. Paul was not speaking out of a vacuum when he dealt with works righteousness. He knew what he was talking about. He personally knew the futility of trying to attain salvation by good works. He'd sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the leading teacher of Israel, and he was getting ready to replace Gamaliel, the great rabbi, Acts 22, verse 3. He became a leader of the Jews, Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. The Jewish nation looked to Paul to interpret and explain the law. But he gave it up to become a member of a despised, what they viewed as a cult. Now, we all understand what a cult is today. You know, we could think of cults. That's the way the Jews and even the Gentiles viewed Christianity for the first couple of hundred years. A cult, for sure. He gave it all up to become a member of this spies Christian sect. And in this autobiographical section, Paul is really the auditor 
We, just, we have our books here at the church audited every year. Okay? And Paul is acting as the auditor who opens the books and examines his wealth and discovers, I'm bankrupt. I'm bankrupt in the eyes of God. That's what he discovers. I'm broke. I'm at the bottom. And so Paul mentions a couple of things here. First of all, he mentions you can't count on religious heritage. You can't count on religious heritage. He was a pure Jew. He wasn't a proselyte. He didn't, he didn't convert to Judaism. He was born in Judaism all the way back to the first Jew. He could trace his lineage. So he, was, he, was, he realized, I can't count on my religious heritage. He was a descendant of Benjamin, a favorite son of Jacob, the favorite wife of, named Rachel. So he came from favored Jewish status, but he realized, I can't count on my religious heritage. I hope you're not doing that. So often when I talk with people and I say, I'm a pastor and I pastor this church, <laughs> it happens all the time. They say, you know, my uncle was a deacon or my grandfather was a pastor in Kansas. And they're, they're kind of throwing out, I'm okay. I got religious heritage. My distant cousin uh, was a missionary or something like that. Don't worry about me. Listen, God has no grandchildren, we say. Just because I'm a pastor and a preacher and a Christian doesn't even ensure that my children are going to be or that my grandchildren are going to be. Okay? God has no grandchildren. Each of us come to him individually in our own time. So you can't count on religious heritage. Second, he says, you can't count on a zealous commitment. As a Pharisee, Paul had reached the highest summit a Jew could ever hope to attain. The Jews would say, well, I don't know if I will gain heaven, but the Pharisees will because they are so committed. They are so zealous. They didn't worry about the Pharisees reaching heaven. It was the rank and file Jew that worried about reaching heaven. <clears throat> If anybody was going to heaven, it was going to be the Pharisees. And Paul also, he says, persecuted the Christians who he believed were preaching lies. Paul says, I was not only defending and believing my own faith as a Pharisee, I went after those who were preaching something different. And I chased them down. I locked them up. I consented to their stoning to death. That's how zealous, that's how uh, on fire I was for, for Judaism. So he's marshalling out his credentials. How could someone so sincere be so wrong? Well, it happens all the time, as you well know. The answer is he was using the wrong measuring stick he was using the wrong measuring stick Saul was looking at the outside not the inside all that he had done not what Christ had done for him he was comparing himself to the standards set by men not with the righteousness of God so if you're here today and you're a high-octane overachiever and you, th and you are thinking that that's going to get you close to God, stop. Hit the brakes. 
pull back on the reins. In the spiritual realm, it is not relying on what you do that gets you to heaven, but resting in what God has done that will get you to heaven. I don't think I can say it any clearer than that. And the Bible can't make it any clearer than that. It is not relying on what you have done, but resting in what God has done that is going to get you to heaven and gain God's favor. So let's talk about faith righteousness now. He's talked about works righteousness, verses 7 through 11. He talks about what we must renounce. He says, but what things were gained to me, those I have counted, there's that word, counted law for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss except for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Most of us can't say that. I've suffered the law. Paul's family rejected him. Here you are getting ready to become the Pope of Judaism. And you renounce it and you join a cult. His family rejected him. Many Bible scholars believe that Paul was married. His wife divorced him if he was. Because Paul was a single man. Throughout his ministry. When he says the loss of all things... He knew what he was talking about. I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, what? Self-righteousness, works righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Works righteousness, faith righteousness. Self-righteousness, imputed righteousness, we could say. And there's only one kind of righteousness that will get you or me or anyone else to heaven, and that's faith righteousness. So Paul had religious heritage. He had scholarly achievements. Some would say that Paul had memorized the entire Old Testament. He had, he had scholarly achievements. He had a zealous reputation. But when he measured himself against what Christ Jesus offered he realized, I'm falling short. Matter of fact, he, <clears throat> he says what? They are refuse to me. We all get what he's saying here. But the things that were gained to me, those I have counted lost for Christ, and I count all, uh, all those things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, uh, and I've suffered these things and count them but rubbish. There's the word, refuge. It's the Greek word, skubala. Literally, it means poop. I don't think I've ever said that from the pulpit before. But Paul uses it. Skubala. Literally, it means dung. There's a little better word, maybe. Paul says, everything that I was counting on, I'm going to flush it down the toilet. I'm going to bury it. It's scubala. It's dung. It's worthless. Has no value. Wow. What a statement. Everything that he had done before he came to Christ was dung, refuge, scubala. Yeah. When it comes to getting into heaven, exactly right. 
So Paul flushed his achievements to gain acceptance with God. You identifying with that? He flushed all of his own achievements to gain acceptance in the religious realm. He flushes all of his religious achievements so he could gain the acceptance of Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean Paul repudiated his Jew- Jewishness. He valued his Jewishness, and he valued his Rome, just like he valued his Roman citizenship. He used it to parlay an opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jew. And he used his Roman citizenship as an opportunity to parlay to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to further the work of God. Becoming a Christian did not make him less Jew. As he says later, it made him a completed Jew. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, he explains that now I'm a completed Jew because now I'm rightly related to Jehovah God. I'm not trying to achieve my own righteousness. I've been, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the family of God. I'm a completed Jew. So he talks about what he must renounce, what we must renounce, and then what we will receive. What do we receive in Christ's righteousness? Well, we all understand it. We, we receive his constant companionship here. We receive the Holy Spirit who comes into our life and the Word of God, which is now open to us and illuminated to us. Well, of course, we all think of salvation. We get eternal life in the bliss of heaven. We gain so much. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary in the 1950s that went to South America, the Aka Indian, he said this statement, and you probably know it. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's a great statement. Nobody would call someone a fool who gives up those things that you cannot hang on to, that you cannot keep for very long, to gain those things which you can never lose. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain those things which he cannot lose. How true. And Paul understood that. Paul lost his religion He lost his reputation, but he gained far more than he ever lost. And I would say amen to that in my life. Would you say amen to that? I think so. What does he say he gains? Look at verse 8. He gains the knowledge of Christ. Yet indeed I count all those things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. It's not just some head facts like we know President Biden is the president, or at least he holds the office. <laughs> uh, we know some facts about him. His wife's name is Jill, etc. You know, son's name is Hunter, whatever. You know, we know some facts about him. I don't think anybody in here really knows him. You've not met him, been to his home for dinner, been to the White House, spent time with him. We don't really know him. So when Paul says knowledge is Christ, he's not talking about a head filled with facts because Paul did know the Bible before he was saved, but he didn't know Christ. He didn't know the Lord. He was counting on his work. So when he says a knowledge of Christ, he's talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know him personally? That's what he's talking about. We know many people 
who lived centuries ago, but we only know a few people intimately, probably our family members and a few close friends. That's what he's talking about. The knowledge of Christ, verse 8. Look at verse 9. I have the righteousness of Christ, he says in verse 9. When Paul trusted Christ, he lost his self-righteousness and he gained the righteousness that only comes through imputation that God gives to him, that Jesus Christ accomplished. That is the righteousness that makes the difference in eternity. It's imparted to my account. It's a banking term. You've heard me say that. Imputed righteousness means a transferal of what Christ's righteousness has accomplished and is transferred to our account. So when God sees us, he sees us in the righteousness of Christ, not in the works of Les Hines or somebody else. He sees us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's imputed righteousness. The knowledge of Christ, he says, is what I gain, verse 8. The righteousness of Christ is what I gained. he says in verse 9. And verses 10 and 11, the fellowship with Christ is what I gain. When Paul was living under the law, all he had was a set of rules to live by. All he had was a set of rules. Now he has a friend. Now he has an enabler. Now he has a, a, a master, a companion. And all the power of heaven that, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead went to work in Paul's life and can go to work in your life. And that's what he says here. Let's look at it again. That I may know him, the power of the resurrection. So the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, which is quite a power, and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So the same power that was at work in Christ is now at work in Paul's life and can be at work in ours. He openly admits that suffering here is part of that walk with Christ, that fellowship with Christ. Because through it, we learn to die to self and we learn to really live for God. There was a husband and a wife that really didn't love each other. They didn't get along well. They stayed married, but it was a struggle and a battle. The man was very demanding, so much so that he prepared a list of rules, regulations, and duties for his wife to follow every day. He insisted she follow them to the letter. Among the other things, of the do's and don'ts, uh, told her what time to get up, what to cook, how to clean, how to prepare his clothes, how to take care of the home. After many long years of drudgery, the man died. As time passed, the woman fell in love with another man, one who dearly and truly loved her. Soon they were married. This husband did everything possible to make his new wife happy and to shower her with his affection. One day as she was cleaning the house, she found a note tucked away, one of those lists of demands from her first husband. She looked it over and realized that although her present husband had never ever given her a list, 
She was doing all the things that her former husband required and much, much more. She was doing those because she loved this man and she was devoted to him and they came naturally to her as a responding wife. That kind of pictures life in Christ. Not a list of rules, not a bunch of demands. It's a love relationship. Now would be a great time for all of us to evaluate our relationship with Jesus Christ and what it's based upon. Is it based upon keeping the rules or is it based upon my relationship with him? He's my savior. I love him and I want to glorify him throughout my days. Hope that you will. Thanks for listening to sermons from the pulpit at Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at www.redrocksbaptistchurch.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist.